Chapter One of Four Fifty Miles to Freedom by Morris Andrew Brackenreed Johnston and Kenneth Darlaston Yearsley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter One Castamoni and Chungri. Il n'y a pas trois officiers. Such was the memorable epigram by which Sheriff Bey, Turkish captain of the prisoners of war guard at Castamoni, and a man regardless of detail, announced to us that four officers, whose escape had been described in Blackwood's magazine, had got safely away from the camp. Those of us who knew that the attempt was being made were anxiously waiting for news. To others it came as a great surprise. Captain Keeling, in his story mentioned above, does not, for obvious reasons, name anyone who helped them. Now it does not matter. Officers sang loudly and long to prevent the nearest sentry from hearing the noise of rusty nails being pulled out of a door not many feet away from him, though hidden from view. More metaphorical dust was thrown in this wretched man's eyes and ears by the incorrigible James, who, during these critical moments, described to him in very inadequate Turkish, but with a sense of humour equal to any occasion, the working parts of a petrol motor-engine. Another helper was an orderly Gunner Prosser, RFA, a remarkable man with a passion for wandering about in the dark. The thought of spending a quiet night sleeping in his prisoner's quarters was repellent to him. As far as we could make out, he never missed a night's prowl. A fez, a false beard, and a civilian overcoat were the only props he used. This was undoubtedly the man to help Keeling's party out of the town, for the by-streets were better known to Prosser in the dark than they were to other prisoners by daylight. Accordingly, he led the four officers out of Castamoni. Someone, however, must have seen and suspected them, for less than three-quarters of an hour after their start the alarm was given. Shots were fired, and the camp suddenly bristled with sentries. Through this cordon Prosser had to get back to his quarters. A Turkish sergeant, into whom he ran full tilt, was knocked over backwards. Followed by revolver shots from the angry Schaus, Prosser darted up one side street, doubled on his tracks by another, and by his own private entrance reached his quarters in safety. Here he disposed of his beard and fez, shaved off his moustache in the dark, and got into bed. When, a few minutes later, Captain Sheriff Bay came round to feel the hearts of all the orderlies, Prosser could hardly be roused from an innocent sleep, and his steady heartbeats allayed all suspicion as to the part he had played. The effect of the escape of these four officers on our camp was considerable. We were confined to our houses without any exercise for ten days. Sentries were more than trebled on the principle of locking the stable door. This, however, did not affect Prosser, who took his nightly walks as usual. Our commandant, Colonel Feta Bey, was dismissed in disgrace, and replaced by a Sami Bey, whose rank corresponded with that of a brigadier-general. Now came rumours of the closing down of the camp at Castamoni, and a move to Chungri, a mere village about eighty miles due south of us. Keeling's party escaped on August the 8th, 1917. Each day that followed, Sheriff Bay brought official news of their capture in different parts of Asia Minor. One was reminded of Mark Twain's stolen white elephant. The marching powers of the four officers must have been phenomenal. Sometimes they covered hundreds of miles in a few hours. Confined to our houses, we amused ourselves taking bets with the Turkish sentries, who were convinced that the fugitives would be brought back to Castamoni within a week. In their opinion, those who had escaped were madmen. What could be more delightful than the life they were running away from? 
One could sit in a chair all day, quietly smoking cigarettes and drinking coffee. Far away from the detested war. Assuredly they were quite mad. Now it was unwise to bet, because when we lost we paid up, and when the Turks lost they did not feel in any way bound to do so. Our first commandant, Colonel Twefik Bey, betted heavily on the war ending before Christmas 1916. He went on the doubling system. On losing his bet he deferred payment and doubled his bet for a later date, till by the time he lost his job as commandant he had mortgaged most of Turkey. One half of the prisoners at Castamoni moved to Chungri on September 27, 1917, and the other half about ten days later. Three weeks before the departure of the first party, we were told to be ready to move in a few days' time. Preparations were made, rooms dismantled, and homemade beds, tables and chairs pulled to bits for convenience of transport. Kit and crockery were packed, and all of us were living in a state of refined discomfort, when we were told that the move had been postponed, owing to the lack of available mules and carts. Some of us set to work to rebuild beds and chairs, others resigned themselves to fate, and were content to sleep on the floor and sit on boxes. If we remember aright, there were two postponements. At last the day of leaving Castamoni really did arrive. We had been promised so many carts and so many mules, and had made our arrangements accordingly. At the last moment we were told that fewer carts and mules had rolled up. This meant leaving something behind, or marching the whole way, one decided for oneself. Many of us marched every step to Chungri. Our departure took place at 1 p.m., and a weird procession we must have looked, carts and mules loaded high with all manner of furniture, stoves and stove-pipes, sticking out in all directions. The poor Greeks of the town were very sad to see us go. The Reverend Harold Spooner, through the Greek priest, had been able from time to time to distribute to these destitute people fair sums of money supplied by voluntary subscription among the prisoners. In addition to this, families of little children used to be fed daily by some messes, and so we were able, in a small way, to relieve the want of a few unhappy Christians. Before we left Castamoni, the Padre showed us a letter which he had received from the head Greek priest, thanking us for having helped the poor. We had, he said, kept families together, and young girls from going on the streets, and he assured us that it would be the privilege of the Greek community to look after the small graveyard we had made for the six officers and men who had died while we were there. By 2 p.m. we were clear of Castamoni. The change of camp would be a great break in the monotony of our existence, and for the time being we were happy. The journey was to take four days. At night we halted near water at a suitable camping-ground by the roadside, and in the early morning started off again. A healthy life and a great holiday for us. For the first two days the scenery was magnificent, as we crossed the forest-covered Hilgers range but as we approached our destination the country became more and more barren. On the fourth day, coming over a crest, we saw the village of Chungri, built at the foot of a steep and bare hill. We went through the village, and a mile beyond us stood our future home. A dirty-looking, two-storied square building it was, surrounded on three sides by level fields, edged with a few willows. On the west the ground rose a little to the main Angora road, Close to the barracks were sixty graves, which looked fairly new. This gave a bad impression of the place at the start. On entering we were too dumbfounded to speak, and here it may be added that it took a lot to dumbfound us. The square inside the buildings was full of sheep and goats, 
and the ground was consequently filthy. The lower story rooms, which were to be our mess rooms, had been used for cattle, and the cellar pointed out to us as our kitchen was at least a foot deep in manure. Only one wing of the barracks had window panes, and these were composed of small bits of glass rudely fitted together. Truly a depressing place. Many of us elected to sleep that night in the square in preference to the filthier barrack rooms. The sanitary arrangements were beyond words. The next morning we set to work cleaning up, but it was weeks before the place was habitable. Another great inconvenience was that for many days drinking water had to be fetched in buckets from the village over a mile away, but for this the Turks finally provided a water-cart. It was at Chungri that most of the twenty-five officers who escaped from Yozgad on August 7th, 1918, made up their parties. Our party, only six at that time, consisted of Captain A. B. Haig, 24th Punjabis, Captain R. A. P. Grant, 112th Infantry, Captain V. S. Clark, 2nd Battalion Royal West Kent Regiment, Captain J. H. Harris, 1st 4th Hampshire Territorials, and the two authors. Throughout the remainder of our narrative, these six will be denoted by their respective nicknames, Old Man, Grunt, Nobby, Pierce, Johnny, and Looney. Roughly speaking, there were four alternative directions to us. Northwards to the Black Sea, a distance of a hundred miles. Eastwards to the Russian front, 250 to 350 miles. To the Mediterranean, 300 miles southward, or 400 miles westward. Compared to the others, the distance to the Black Sea was small, but outweighing this advantage was the fact that Keeling's party had got away in that direction, and the coast would be carefully guarded if another escape took place. The position of the Russian front, so far as we knew, was anything up to 350 miles away, and the country to the east of us was very mountainous. In addition, an escape in that direction would entail getting through the Turkish fighting lines, which we thought would prove very difficult. The salt desert, at least 150 miles across, frightened us off thinking of the southern route. The remaining one was westward. It was the longest distance to go, it is true, but for this very reason we hoped the Turks would not suspect us of trying it. The valleys ran in the direction we should be travelling, and if we did reach the coast it was possible that we might get in touch with one of the islands in Allied hands. Having made up our minds, we sent code messages home to find out which would be the best island to make for in the following early summer. We also asked for reduced maps to cover our route from Chungri to the selected island, and requested that a lookout should be kept from it in case we signalled from the coast. Shortly after we made our decision, the question of giving parole cropped up. To anyone who gave it, the Turks offered a better camp and more liberty. It was a question for each to decide for himself and we did so. On the 22nd of November 1917, therefore, 77 officers went off to Geddos. It was very sad parting from many good friends, and when the last cart disappeared round the spur of the hill, one turned away, wondering if one would ever see them again. There were still 44 officers and about 28 orderlies at Jungri. These officers were moved into the north wing of the barracks, and there they remained for the next four and a half months. At this period we had a great financial crisis. None of us had any money. Prices were very high, and it came to tightening our belts a little. Our long and badly built barrack rooms were very draughty, and as we had no money there was not much likelihood of getting firewood. Some cheerful Turk kindly told us that the winter at Chungri was intensely cold, and that the temperature often fell below zero. 
Altogether, the prospect for the next few months was anything but pleasant. During our most depressed moments, however, we could always raise a smile over the thought that we were the honoured guests of Turkey. Enver Pasha himself had told us so at Mosul, where we halted on our four-hundred-mile march across the desert after the fall of Kut el Amara, so it must have been true. At the time we write, this unscrupulous adventurer, Enver, a man of magnetic personality and untiring in his energy to further his personal schemes, has but lately fled to Caucasia. He is a young man, and having held a position of highest authority in Turkey for some years, presumably a rich one. Doubtless he will lead a happy and prosperous existence for many years to come. There are thousands of sad hearts in England and in the Indian Empire today, and hundreds of thousands in Turkey itself, as a result of the utter disregard for human life entertained by this man and a few of his colleagues. Of the massacre of the Armenians we will not speak, although we have seen their dead bodies, and although we have met their little children dying of starvation on the roadsides, and have passed by their silent villages, but we should fail in our duty to the men of the British Empire who died in captivity in Turkey did we not appeal for a stern justice to be meted out to the men responsible for their dying. It may perhaps be said, with truth, that it was no studied cruelty on the part of the Turkish authorities that caused the death of so many brave men who had given themselves to the work of their country. Yet with equal truth it may be said that it was the vilest form of apathy and of wanton neglect. Where the taking of a little trouble by the high officials at Constantinople would have saved the lives of thousands of British and Indian soldiers, that trouble was never taken. Weak with starvation and sick with fever and dysentery, we speak of the men of Kut. They were made to march five hundred miles in the burning heat across waterless deserts, without regular or sufficient rations and without transport, in many cases without boots, which had been exchanged for a few mouthfuls of food or a drink of water. We officers, who had not such a long march as the men, and who were given a little money and some transport, thought ourselves in a bad way, but what of the men who had none? There were no medical arrangements, and those who could not march fell by the desert paths and died. The official white book gives the number 65 as the percentage of deaths amongst British soldier prisoners taken at Kut, a figure which speaks for itself. It is a law of the world's civilization that, if a man take the life of another, except in actual warfare, he must pay forfeit with his own life. Take away bribery and corruption, and that law holds good in Turkey. Now, when a soldier is taken prisoner, he ceases to be an active enemy, and the country of his captors is as responsible for his welfare as for that of her own citizens. What if that country so fails to grasp the responsibility that its prisoners are allowed to die by neglect? Should not its rulers be taught such a lesson that it would be impossible for those of future generations to forget it? It is not enough to obtain evidence of a cruel corporal at that prisoner's camp, or a bestial commandant at this, and to think that by punishing them we have avenged our dead. These men are underlings. The men we must punish first are those few in high authority, who, by an inattention to their obvious duty, have made it possible for their menials to be guilty of worse than murder. We pride ourselves on the fact that we are citizens of the most just country of the world. Let us see to it that justice is not starved. End of chapter 1